he's not doing a Walcott-esque, like, packing it with tons of really striking images and metaphors. It's a lot of really ordinary language, like we've talked about. It feels natural, like he's trying to get us to forget that we're reading a poem. The battle is what makes the poem. If he, if he wanted to prevent, present a thesis or an argument, we would be much less interested. What we are interested in is this dialectic. Do they or don't they? And we think that they, it comes to some kind of synthesis, but it's the war that we like. It's the battle between the neighbors that we like. Yeah. So don't, the, the lesson to me is don't write poems that know. Your mm-hmm. poems can't know. They can maybe suspect, they can maybe very gently hint, but they have to be embattled with themselves. It could even add, I don't know, more weight to that end that he puts, you know, good fences make good neighbors, kind of like his his conclusion, because you know that he he's not one-sided. Like he right. presented both sides and he battled it um, and let us think about it too. Hi, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Esther and Alexander about a few poems by Robert Frost. To begin, a very short quote of the day. One of my favorite statements about poetry. Frost once wrote, quote, Like a piece of ice on a hot stove, the poem must ride on its own melting. I think that's an absolutely perfect metaphor for the surprising twists and turns that we look for as readers in poems, and aspire to as writers of poems. And for a few poems that excel at this, let's go into that chat with me and Esther and Alexander. Hi, Alexander. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing great. Here's Esther. Hello, Esther. Hello. Good morning. How are you? Doing great. How are you? Doing good. I want to talk about Birches. I think we probably will only have time to talk about three poems. Here's what I think we should do. We should talk about our three poems that we want to talk about. And we should also shout out, do three shout outs. So we won't have time to talk about Home Burial, even though I really want to. But I want to talk about Birches more. So that's why we're choosing Birches. But I will perform a kind of shout out to Home Burial. And in 60 seconds, encourage people to reread it, say why I like it. And maybe that's what we could do. We could each pick a poem to highlight and enthuse over, and on our way out of our discussion of that poem, perform a little shout out to a second poem that we really love. I know you want to do Mending Wall, right, Alexander and Esther? Which poem did you want to do? Yeah, I want to do The Vindictives. The what? The Vindictives. Oh, The Vindictives. This is going to be good because this is not a poem that is, I mean, I reread it, of course, a few days ago in preparation, but it's not usually on my radar. This is very good. (laughs) I wonder what order we should do it in. Do you have any intuitions as to, to what order? Does anyone really want to go first? I I kind of feel like there's some... If I go first, I can set the table for future discussion. But then if I go first, I'm doing all the talking at the start, which I don't really love. So maybe if I go first, I can try to do it in a way that involves you two inside of my discussion of Birch's. And I'll I'll pull you guys into it from time to time as I read through this poem. Does that sound okay and fair? Sounds good. You guys, I've been thinking all weekend. Should I interrupt myself or should I just read it all and then talk <laughs> after the fact? 
Because I feel like as a poem, it needs to be uninterrupted. Maybe I'll do that and then I'll come back. I'm wasting so much time. I apologize. So I'm going to read it and then I'm going to circle back and land on certain bits that I love and talk about why we love them. And I'll pull you two in, I promise. So it, it won't be a monologue. When I see birches bend to left and right across the lines of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boy has been swinging them. But swinging doesn't bend them down to stay as ice storms do. Often you must have seen them, loaded with ice a sunny winter morning after a rain. They click upon themselves as the breeze rises and turn many colored as the stir cracks and crazes their enamel. Soon the sun's warmth makes them shed crystal shells, shattering and avalanching on the snow crust, such heaps of broken glass to sweep away, you'd think the inner dome of heaven had fallen. They are dragged to the withered bracken by the load, and they seem not to break, though once they are bowed so low for long, they never right themselves. You may see their trunks arching in the woods, years afterwards, trailing their leaves on the ground like girls on hands and knees that throw their hair before them over their heads to dry in the sun. But, I was going to say, when truth broke in with all her matter of fact about the ice storm, I should prefer to have some boy bend them as he went out and in to fetch the cows. Some boy, too far from town to learn baseball, whose only play was what he found himself, summer or winter, and could play alone. One by one he subdued his father's trees by riding them down over and over again until he took the stiffness out of them, and not one but hung limp, not one was left for him to conquer. He learned all there was to learn about not launching out too soon and so not carrying the tree away clear to the ground. He always kept his poise to the top branches, climbing carefully with the same pains you use to fill a cup up to the brim and even above the brim. Then he flung outward, feet first with a swish, kicking his way down through the air to the ground. So was I once myself a swinger of birches, and so I dream of going back to be. It's when I'm weary of considerations, and life is too much like a pathless wood, where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it, and one eye is weeping from a twig's having lashed across it open. I'd like to get away from earth a while, and then come back to it and begin over. May no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish, and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree and climb black branches up a snow-white trunk toward heaven till the tree could bear no more but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good both going and coming back. One could do worse than be a swinger of birches. Now, on one hand, I feel like this poem hardly needs my explication. Isn't it self-evidently beautiful? So good. Absolutely. It's so good. So all I, I'm not going to interpret it. I mean, they're like readings of these poems. No, I'm just going to talk about why I love it and what it can teach me about poetry. I should say, first of all, that it depicts a pastime that maybe we don't engage in anymore. I myself have never tried to swing a birch. Have either of you? I've never been a swinger of birches. No, but apparently no, yeah, <laughs> before video games, this is what people used to do, you know? 
they'd go out into the woods, find a birch tree, climb up it, a sapling type one that was kind of thin. Just like in the cartoons, they'd climb up it and um, it would bend and it would dip them over and set them down. Or, or they could like slingshot it up, you know? Sounds like quite a slightly dangerous uh, activity. <laughs> Why do I love this poem? When I see birches bend to left and right across the lines of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boy's been swinging them. Immediately what I notice when I start reading this poem is how monosyllabic it is. I dump poems, I copy and paste poems into text analyzers online. And without, without fail, most great poems in English swing heavily towards monosyllables. Just taking those first few lines as a sampling, there's only birches across, straighter, darker, swinging. Every other word is a monosyllable, a one-syllable word. Why, any intuitions here? What is it that is so beautiful about one-syllable words? Why is it, do you think, that English is at its most beautiful in monosyllables? I think um, a lot of the native Anglo-Saxon words are one or two-syllable words. And so when you get to two syllables or three syllables, those are French or Latin borrowings. Indeed. And they're still good words and they're useful words, but there's something about their foreignness to English okay. that I think is a little bit... I don't know, less concrete or something. They're, they're more abstract. I don't know, the line that sticks out to me with monosyllables is that line, as the stir cracks and crazes their enamel. Those, yeah. They're just so crunchy. I don't know. <laughs> you, you're very correct about this Anglo-Saxon. It's very highly monosyllabic language. So perhaps it's hearkening back to the roots of English, which we like, maybe in our bones. I don't know. But this is not to imply, is it, that Latin poetry is ugly? simply because it's polysyllabic. I I just love the beauty of simplicity. And I think that's partly why, you know, it's something that's relatable, something that we can easily connect with um, and understand. And and there's just so much beauty that comes with simple things. Very good. Um, that's kind of what I was thinking. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think this is especially important to emphasize in a poetry class where perhaps the impulse is to reach for our thesaurus and to look for a fancier word. I think poets like Frost, po poets like all of the poets we've been reading, poets like Walcott, you think of uh, the schooner flight, you know, all those wonderful four-letter words that we can't say on air. You don't have to, beauty is not necessarily the same as complexity. You know, don't assume when you're writing a poem that a four-syllable word is better than a one-syllable word. The great poets, poets teach us the opposite. I'll also just quickly add, I see time ticking. It's already soon time to, to turn to poem number two. I would also just add that it, it helps with metrical variation. A, a poem composed mostly of monosyllables is a poem, imagine a finger. In fact, this is not an, 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 an tangent upon tangent here, but dactyl, the word dactyl. So if you scan poetry, you learn words like I am and trochee and anapest and dactyl. And I am is a Dum unstressed and a stressed. A trochi is a dum dum stress unstressed. A dactyl is a oh dear, I always get dactyl. It's a three syllable one. Stressed, unstressed, unstressed. Thank you, Alexander. It's definitely stressed, unstressed, unstressed. Okay, very good. It shares its roots with the, I think, the Greek for finger, because the finger your finger bone has three little bones, right? If you look at your finger bone, it has one segment, two segments, three segments. People listening can't see me, but I'm doing the wiggly worm with my finger, yeah? 
And a poem made of, of little tiny segments, little tiny units, is just much more flexible. And when you read it, it enables a much more wonderful variety of intonations. Yeah, like, like girls on hands and knees that throw their hair. That line is all monosyllables. So I could read it as all of those lines, all of those words as stressed, like girls on hands and knees that throw their hair. I could do the typical iambic pentameter thing, like girls on hands and knees that throw their hair. I could kind of, it's much more flexible. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's much more flexible. And we like that. It's pleasing. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to emphasize the way in which Robert Frost in this poem is very good at encapsulating the sound of what he's describing in the letters of the words. They click upon themselves as the breeze rises and turn many colored as the stir cracks and crazes their enamel. Soon the sun's warmth makes them shed crystal shells. So he wants you to hear, you've all been in an ice storm where the branches click together. Mm -hmm. He wants those k sounds to, to be audible as you read this poem out loud. I think that's so beautiful. You'd think su such heaps of broken glass to sweep away, you'd think the inner dome of heaven had fallen. Now, he's introducing heaven, this idea of the metaphysical, but he's baby-stepping us into it. I'm going to go a little bit faster here. Okay, let me ask this as a question so I shut up. What do you guys make of, how do you react to this moment about, but I was going to say when truth broke in, so he's embedding an interruption into the poem. This is a kind of curated sense of interruption. Why do this as a poet? For me, I don't know. There's something that makes a little bit lighthearted, a little kind of natural speech type thing to it, where he kind of says, okay, that whole thing that I've just gone on to was a complete digression. Let me get back to the point of why I was writing this poem in the first place. So, I don't know, for me, it's kind of a comical effect. It makes me smile. It made me smile when I got to that line. Yeah, I mean, you said two important things. It adds comedy to the poem, and we like comedy, but it adds a certain naturalness. We all have been in the presence of people who talk this way. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> you know, you keep interrupting themselves. So it adds a sense of verisimilitude or realism. Yeah, no, I was kind of thinking along the same lines of Alexander, like taking us away from the poem, like putting us back into real life. Yeah. Um, and then putting us back in, which is totally Robert Frost style. I mean, he, with the humor and stuff, like he's just um, a very um, comedic poet, which yeah. I love. And he just has like a really good style for his humor. Very comedic and very digression-y. You know, as you say, Esther, he, he kind of wants us to forget sometimes that we're reading a poem, which is, I think, good. Mm -hmm. He wants us to think that we're with him in a room and he's just talking. So he mm -hmm. wants to embed all this naturalness into it. He has this wonderful image of a, a poem has to ride. I've referenced this in class, I'm sure. A poem has to ride its own melting, like ice on a hot stove. So he wants the poem to kind of take its own zigzags. I have to go fast now. I think this poem can teach us. It's a kind of metaphor for how to write poetry. Uh, with the same pains you use to fill a cup up to the brim and even above the brim. So cram as much as you can into your box until it's overflowing. I love that. I love that grief is described in concrete terms. It's when I'm weary of considerations and life is too much like a pathless wood where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it and one eye is weeping from a twig's having lashed across it open. He's clear. He's talking about grief and sorrow and pain, but he wants us to feel it. 
he wants us to feel like our eyes have been scraped. So he's constantly grounding us, which takes me to the very end. And I promise this will be the last thing I say because we have to move on. But this poem is a wonderful grounded embodiment. It contains spiritual advice. It contains poetic writing advice. Love how he says, sometimes I'd like to get away from earth a while and then come back to it and begin over this kind of Keatsian half in love with easeful death, death wish. He says, don't misunderstand me. Earth's the right place for love. You couldn't get more universal or cosmic. We've talked in this poem, in this class about how poems need to achieve a kind of, they need to be about everyone. They need to be about the human condition. 60% of the pleasures of frost, I think come from this aphoristic wisdom, wisdom condensed into these little bumper stickers. Earth's the, <laughs> Earth's the right place for love. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree and climb black branches up a snow white trunk toward heaven till the tree could bear no more, but dipped its top and sent me down again. As spiritual advice, this is great. We have, we have to aspire towards heaven, but never quite achieving heaven because we have to stay on earth because we have to love the earth because the earth is great. You know, We have to aim at perfection. This is poetic advice. Aim at perfection, but stay grounded to the things of this world. Yeah. So this poem teaches me how to live. It teaches me how to write. And it does so in a way that is the most beautiful sonic utterance, really, that I have come across. I want to shut up because we do have to go to, let's go to Esther's poem next, shall we? Yeah. Es do you want to read your poem? Um, yeah, I can read my poem. You like to hear about gold. A king filled his prison room as full as the room could hold. To the top of his reach on the wall, with every known shape of the stuff, Twas to buy himself off his doom, but it wasn't ransom enough. His captors accepted it all, but didn't let go of the king. They made him send out a call to his subjects to gather them more. And his subjects wrung all they could wring out of temple and palace and store. But when there seemed no more to bring, his captors convicted the king of once having started a war and strangled the wretch with a string. But really that gold was not half that a king might have hoped to compel. Not a half, not a third, not a tithe. The king had scarce ceased to writhe. When hate gave a terrible laugh, like a manhole open to hell. If gold pleased the conqueror well, that gold should be the one thing the conqueror henceforth should lack. They gave no more thought to the king, all joined in the game of high gold. They swore all the gold should go back deep into the earth whence it came. Their minds ran on cranny and crack, all joined in the maddening game. The tale is still boastingly told of many a treasure by name that vanished into the black and put out its light for the foe. That self-sack and self-overthrow, that was the splendidest sack since the forest Germans sacked Rome and took the gold candlesticks home. When Inca prince on the rack and late in his last hour alive told them in what lake to dive to seek what they seemed so to want. They dived and nothing was found he told them to dive till they drowned. The whole fierce conquering pack hunted and tortured and raged. There were sons of story and bond. They searched for into Brazil, their tongue pinging out unassuaged. But the conquered grew meek and still. They slowly and silently aged. They kept their secrets and died, maliciously satisfied. One knew of a burial hole in the floor of a tribal cave where under deep ashing charcoal, and cracked bones, human and beast. The midden of feast upon feast was coiled in its last resting grave. The great treasure wanted the most, the great thousand linked gold chain. 
each link of a hundred weight that once between post and post in leaning under the strain and looped 10 times back and forth had served as a palace gate. Some said it had gone to the coast, some over the mountains east, some into the country north on the backs of a single file host commanded by one sun priest and the raising of dust with a train of flashing links in the sun. No matter what some may say, the saying is never done. There brighten the filth that lay untarnished by rust and decay and be all plunders cursed. The best way to hate is the worst is to find what the hated need. Never mind of what actual worth and wipe that out of the earth. Let them die of unsatisfied greed, of unsatisfied love of display, of unsatisfied love of the high, unvulgar, unsoiled, and ideal. Let their trappings be taken away. Let them suffer starvation and die of being brought down to the real. Wow. What a great choice. I, I'm so glad you chose this because, again, it's, it's, it's a poem that not many people talk about. is largely off of my radar. Please praise it. Yes. What I love about this is, um, once again, he is talking to, you know, humankind. This is a very universal message that he is sending here. And you mentioned this a little bit, too, how, like, Robert Frost is often seen as, like, a lighthearted poet or, like, mm. he writes about uh, light things. But here, this is a pretty darker, heavy topic. I mean, this is this is talking about greed. This is such a destructive thing that we see in society. And it's just so interesting how he portrays it. I, he talks about, like, let them die of unsatisfied greed, of unsatisfied love of display. It's just so interesting because they, you know, they think that this is where they can get their satisfaction. It's It's an obsession over money. But then they always die sad. They die unsatisfied. They die, you know, being brought down to the real, as he says at the very end. And I think it's also interesting that he says, let them suffer starvation and die. And I kind of view that as like, they're starved of the real joys of life. You know, they they spent their whole time seeking after what they think brings them true joy, true happiness, you know, money. But in reality, their their souls are starving to death because gold and money doesn't bring them that joy that they're seeking. Um, it's just so deep and so profound. I just really love it. And so aphoristic. I'll I'll reemphasize that. You know, there are so many, because of the form, single line moments that come as kind of aphorisms, truth statements. The saying is never done. I love that one. The saying is never done. I'm taking that as a kind of motto for poetry. Or the best way to hate is the worst, to find what the hated need, never mind of what actual worth, and wipe that out of the earth. Um, it's a very, I mean, I, I want Alexander to weigh in here in a second here, but just, you know, it's a wonderful tension between the form, which sounds like a nursery rhyme, mm -hmm. and the content, which is a kind of dark parable about evil, human evil. So this is a lesson to us. Fra, uh, Pope, Alexander Pope says, the sound must seem an echo to the sense. You know, this is one of his aphorisms. And I don't think that's always true. In fact, I think generally there's no way for poetry to always reproduce the sound of what it's describing. We saw Frost trying to do that in the clicks and stir cracks and crazes their enamel. But I think just as often or more often, we see that there's great tension between the form of a poem and its content. Oh, here's a light little nursery run I would chant to my kids about selfishness, 
genocide, murder, <laughs> greed, you know? So you can get a lot of mileage out of banging together form and content like stones and seeing the sparks fly. Yeah, I like that about it. Alexander, how do you react to this poem? Why, why is it praiseworthy? What can it teach us about writing poetry? I had, I kind of had trouble appreciating as much some of these pieces that, because there are a few, I think, in the reading that were kind of, what would you say, kind of like parables? Yes. And in a kind of, yeah, nursery rhyme form, that's a good way to put it. But I really like what you guys are pointing out that I hadn't thought of before, how, yes, it's in this kind of cute form, but it's not a cute poem at all. It's And even that first line, <laughs> the fact that it's in a nursery rhyme form, that first line, like, is this to his, is he talking to a child? Like, I love oh, you like to hear about line. gold. Let me, let me tell you about gold, you know? <laughs> so it just kind of becomes actually a really horrifying scene of like this <laughs> parent or whatever telling their child this neat little story. Um, yes. Yeah. I really like what you guys have shared. I don't have much to add. No, I love that first line. It's kind of dark, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you like to hear about gold? Okay, well, let me tell you a story about gold. Um, so wonderful. There are other parables. We don't have time to talk about the lesser Robert Frost. I kind of hope maybe in the next podcast or maybe in class we will, because Frost is one of those poets whom lightning struck from time to time, and he wrote occasional masterpieces. But very often he wasn't writing masterpieces. Very often he was just at his desk trying to write poetry, and out came some horribly sentimental, tonally confused thing and this is very instructive to me that even the great poets don't always know how to do it they are relying a lot on this strange alchemy that they can't quite control or be in i mean i have said over and over again in this course that there is no recipe for poetry it can't i can't tell you how to write poetry because i don't know how it's done it might that might sound like a cop-out um but frost clearly didn't know how to do it either or every single poem would be as good as every single other poem. Sometimes he tried and he didn't know how to make it work and it didn't work. So we rely on effort. We rely on all this. He's clearly read his Shelley and his Browning and his Shakespeare. But it's not as if he's doing home runs every single poem. So take solace in that. Take comfort in that. And don't be afraid of saying, I rely on luck i rely on the constellation of the stars esther you're you want to say something yeah i just wanted to like kind of add on to that nobody is like perfect at something you know um to learn a skill or any type of that skill it takes effort it takes practice and it takes screw-ups it takes those those bad poems to write good poems nobody is perfect at it it's just part of the process it's part of being a good you know, whatever yes. you're doing, a good poet, a good writer, a good, you know, inventor, whatever it is, it, it takes mess ups. A good parent, a good child. I mean, I love this. The saying will, will what does he say? The saying will always go on. The saying is never done. The saying is never done. So that's, that's, a, that's a mantra. You should put that above your writing desk. It's not about this poem and how good it is or isn't. Just keep trying. Keep going. Keep saying. Mending wall. Alexander, please read this poem and then we will spend the remaining time praising it. I said we would do these shout outs. Maybe we will at the very end if we have time. Maybe we won't. Mending wall. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen ground swell under it, 
and spills the upper boulders in the sun, and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I have come after them and made repair where they have left not one stone on a stone, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps, I mean. No one has seen them made or heard them made, but at spring mending time we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go, to each the boulders that have fallen to each, and some are loaves, and some so nearly balls we have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Well, just another kind of outdoor game, one on a side. It comes to little more. There, where it is, we do not need the wall. He is all pine, and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built the wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I could say elves to him, but it's not elves exactly, and I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there bringing a stone grasped firmly by the top in each hand, like an old stone savage armed. He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not of woods only, in the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well. He says again, good fences make good neighbors. Okay, Alexander, <laughs> please praise this poem and tell us what it can teach us about writing our own. There's a lot of good things about this poem, of course. I really like the first line. Mm. Um, Another aphorism. Yeah, it's one of those aphorisms we've talked about. But it's just kind of weird, too. I mean, the first time I read it, I was like, what is that? What does that even mean? Because there's that inversion where we'd normally say there is something that doesn't live a wall. But it's also just a weird way to say something. So I like that. I think Frost does that a lot, opening with a line that really catches your attention. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's something grammatical or striking image. The other thing I wanted to say that I really love about this or that stuck out to me is that he's not doing a Walcott-esque, like packing it with tons of really striking images and metaphors. It's a lot of really ordinary language like we've talked about. It feels natural, like he's trying to get us to forget that we're reading a poem. And he only puts in maybe five really striking images. I mean, I really like this digression. He has a digression again, too. I really like this digression and the image of the yelping dogs trying to get to the rabbit. I really like the rocks as loaves or little balls. Mm. And that ending image, of course, with his neighbor looking like an old stone savage armed in darkness. So there's a few of these really striking images in there, but it's, it's alternated with just really ordinary language. And um, I don't know, that teaches me that, yeah, we don't always have to be doing, what would you say, like fireworks? You can, yeah. you can just put in the right spice. I don't know. If... Yeah, no, I think large part of the, the pleasure of the poem is musical. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. This reminds me of um, the first line of my favorite Frost poem, which was not in the section of today's reading. Directive, back then out of all this now too much for us is the first line of that poem. And you think, wait, you have to like rub your eyes. Am I awake? Take another sip of tea. Diet Coke, right? Wake up. Uh, back then out of all this, now too much for us. What are you saying? So 
he has ways of surprising us that, like you say, Alexander, are grammatical, a slight inversion of grammar. We think, oh, interesting. But then how, simply how musical what follows is that sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun that makes gaps even two can pass abreast. Wonderful mix of makes gaps even, right? It's like a spondy in there, a, a double stress. Wonderful S sounds, alliteration, yeah. But even these parallelisms, he's full of parallelisms. And on a day we meet to walk the line, perfectly iambic, but um, but um, but um, but um, but um, and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go. Three lines of perfect iambic pentameter right in a row. Each kind of there's some anaphora there. Each kind of parallels of each other, if that makes sense. Some repetitions inside of them. So there's all these slight musical effects that he's piling on. And then he'll vary this, stay where you are. So instead of beginning a line with an unstressed and then a stress, da-dum, it should be iambic pentameter. He, he begins with a hard stress, stay where you are, four stresses in a row, until our backs are turned. So as you say, it's not necessarily a Walcott. This is not, Walcott is a painter. So, I mean, Walcott has a great ear and his poems are highly musical, but they're so visual. It's just such thick paint, such visual pleasure, yeah? Frost, I think, is more of a storyteller and more of a story listener. And so he, he wants, he has this wonderful, the sound of sense is this theory that Frost has. And he invites people to imagine listening to a conversation behind or in a different room, listening to a conversation through a door, a closed door. You know this. You'll be able to kind of follow the conversation because of its pitch and its volume and its speed and its stresses even if you can't hear the words. I think that's the type of instrument that English is to him, to Robert Frost. It's a kind of symphony of intonation and stress and balance and poise, which I love about this poem. Can we talk for three minutes about the tone of this poem? I find the tone of this poem quite strange. Uh, how do, how best to get at this question? I want you guys to talk, not me. So I'm trying to formulate a question that will spurn some answers here. What are all of the tonal ingredients? Maybe we'll start there. Like, So what are some possible tonal ingredients? Grief, humor, comedy, seriousness, sadness, confusion, hatred, delight, mm -hmm. you know, tonal words. Yeah. What are the various tones that we see at work here? Let's start there. And then I want to ask, do they feel coherent? How do how does he make them cohere? One of the ones that um, stuck out to me, and, and it's with that first line and where it's repeated. There's something about that inversion that is just kind of whimsical, right? Is that, that is that a tonal word? I, <laughs> I mean, so. the second time he brings it up, he mentions elves. You know, I could say elves to him, right. but it's not elves exactly. So there's this <laughs> kind of whimsy to it. Whimsy is a great word. He even says mischief. Yeah. Spring is the mischief in me. So he's even kind of acknowledging, why do I feel so mischievous? So elf-like, yeah? <laughs> so whimsy, elf, elfishness, mis mischievousness. That's a great tone word. Any other tone words, Esther? I don't know. Okay, so I don't know how to put a word to this. Maybe you guys can help me. So he says, good fences make good neighbors multiple times. But then at the beginning, he says something there is that doesn't love a wall. Mm -hmm. So it's like this idea of like, you don't like the wall or the fence, but then you also do because it makes good neighbors. Yes. And so I don't know, like it's kind of like a, a paradox or like yes. um, contradictory. 
um, idea that he is painting here that is really interesting. That gives it like a different feel, a different tone. But I can't quite like put a word no, to you're it. Right. I mean, we 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 could we could call that uncertainty, questioning. There's a tough yeah. question. Mm-hmm. What is it that doesn't level wall? There we go. Like he's going back and forth. Like it's not a set answer. It's like let me dress this side and then dress this side. Yes, uh, it's reminding me of Zimborska's mantra. I don't know, right? So he's being quite cheeky here, right? Because what is it that destroys over a winter uh, the stability of a stone wall? It's frost. So this is the kind of autobiographical, autobiographical. This is a poem about me, and I'm not going to name it. What is it? What is it? We all know the thing, but he's not naming it for us. It's frost. That's what destroys these walls. Um, so he doesn't like walls, this kind of implicit argument that I don't like walls, you know? He even says that. I would just assume, what does he say? Yeah, before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom yeah. I would like to give offense. He's like, my my apple trees aren't going to go over and eat the cones under his pines. Very weird image of these, like, suddenly <laughs> apples sprouting legs. It's almost a slightly cartoonish tone to this whole poem. How does he, this will be the last question maybe before we have to move on to final thoughts, but with all of this puckishness, this elfishness, this this paradox, cheekiness, how does he get away with being so annoyingly childish? Does that make sense? How is so much childishness inside a poem that I think will last forever? Elves? I might say elves, Tim. Come on, elves. Stop it with your elves. This isn't serious. (laughs) For me, it's like how he couples it with these two. For me, there's two really dark moments in the poem. And the one is that I've mentioned this image of a rabbit hiding in the stones of the wall and these yelping dogs trying to get it out. And that comes at the beginning. And then there's one at the end with the where he, he sees the neighbor like an old stone savage armed moving right. in darkness with these two stones. Yeah. I don't know. The way he sets up his neighbor is just this very serious, dark character mm. who's just like set on this. He's just like, he's not going to budge. Good fences make good neighbors, you know? I think there's something about that seriousness that makes the poem work. I don't know. Good fences make good neighbors is, is first of all, it's a surprising argument. But even if we only spend three minutes thinking about it, we think, oh, it is true, though. You need boundaries. Relationships need boundaries to thrive. So there's this threat of darkness that counterbalances the levity. My neighbor could kill me. He's picking up the stone. He could bash my brains out with it. There's this kind of dark threat there. As you say, Alexander, there's tinges of the human potential for evil inside of us. Yeah. One thing that is helping maintain the peace is boundary lines. Well, one last thought on that. I don't know. I want to hear Esther's thought too, though. <laughs> but but one other thing that you just made me think of when you said that was that just the fact that he ends on that again, I think is a big part of it. That he ends on good fences make good neighbors makes it feel like, okay, yeah, Frost, the speaker himself is saying this as true. He doesn't, he doesn't say, he says again, good fences make good neighbors and then ends with, but I think they don't or, or but I still think that I want them down, you know? But I think I know what you mean, but no, I, I want to emphasize the fact that the poem might be arguing this, but Frost knows that poems can't just preach. They they have to contain what Zimborska calls an I don't know element. So that's probably why Frost is embedding what Esther calls this paradox. There has to be some character in the poem who doesn't like walls. So I will nominate myself, Frost is saying. 
do the counter argument. So the poem is very ambivalent. Do they or don't they? Do they or don't they? We think the implicit message is that they do, but it's the battle is what makes the poem. If he if he wanted to prevent, present a thesis or an argument, we would be much less interested. What we are interested in is this dialectic. Do they or don't they? And we think that they, it comes to some kind of synthesis. This antithesis and thesis come to some kind of th- synthesis at the end. Oh, they probably do make good neighbors. But it's the war that we like. It's the battle between the neighbors mm-hmm. that we like. Yeah. So don't the, the lesson to me is don't write poems that know. Your mm-hmm. poems can't know. They can maybe suspect, they can maybe very gently hint, but they have to be embattled with themselves. They have to be ambivalent about their own theses and about their own arguments. I'll chuck the mic mm-hmm. to you, Esther. It's kind of, I don't know, this is a kind of a non-question, but here's the mic. Say whatever yeah, you want. No, yeah, yeah, I was just kind of going to say the same thing almost, or like, you want a poem to be explorative. Um, you want to provoke thought and, you know, deeper analyzing and, um, trying to make connections um, and have greater understanding. And I also was thinking that like with this whole battle that he's got going on in here, like it could even add, I don't know, more weight to that end that he puts, you know, good fences make good neighbors, kind of like his his conclusion, because you know that he he's not one-sided. Like he right. presented both sides and he battled it um, and let us think about it too. And then he presented what he thought was the answer, which is, you know, I mean, if he just presented the one side, would we believe him? You know, like Mm -hmm. it just kind of gives him more credibility when he has presented the other side. Love that. Go read Home Burial. I'm talking now to the listeners. One of the best poems of the 20th century, Home Burial. Well, we will talk about it in class. Speaking of dialectics and wars and battles between opposing (laughs) viewpoints, we'll talk about that in class. Do either of you want to make a shout out for like, I also love this as you sh- as you shout on the way out of the door. I really love the first of the of the poems in the two witches. Oh, it's so Speaking good. Speaking of dark, weird humor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, we're, so we'll go read that to, one. Yeah, go read that one. We'll get to the dark, even more dark mm-hmm. elements. I really liked Alone Striker. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that one has a lot of like really cool parallels and and it's also like more of a deeper one. And I just love the rhyming. The rhyming is really great in that one. Well, thank you both for an excellent chat. Have a great thank day. You. Have a great week. See thank you. Wednesday. Take care. You See ya. Bye. For today's poetry prompt, I want you to find your favorite line by Robert Frost in the selection of poems that I'm having you read. Then spend a few minutes writing down why you think it's your favorite line. I really want you to write this down. It's one thing to think of it, but it's a totally other thing to commit it to writing, to try to make a list of attributes that this line has that speak to you, specific reasons why you love it so much. And then I want you to, instead of drafting a whole poem, draft a series of lines that try to achieve those same effects. So it can be a a page that is simply a list of isolated, unrelated lines of poetry. But try to put into these lines of poetry everything that that line by Frost has that you love. This should, at the very least, give you a great reservoir of material to put into future poems, or inspire directions and ideas for poems that you wouldn't otherwise have gotten. And 
Thirdly, help you to articulate to yourself a little more clearly why poems that speak to you speak to you. That's it for now. Coming up there will be another recording about a few more wonderful Frost poems, so keep your eyes out for that. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great poet. <laughs>